welcome. I'm Autumn, and I am so glad to spend Mother's Day with you. If you're online or in person, I'm so glad we're here together. Well, if you're like me, then you may be a busy mom or a busy woman or just busy, and you have a hard time getting all your laundry from the laundry basket put into your closets, right? So on any given morning, you might find me looking through a laundry basket full of clean clothes for something good to wear. But let me tell you two things that do not look good on anyone, unjust and unrighteous. No one wants to be unjust and no one wants to be unrighteous. And yet, rarely are people that are self-righteous self-aware. Self-righteousness is when our rightness becomes so internalized, it becomes part of our identity. When we're being self-righteous, we look down on those that are different than us, those that act differently than us, and those that behave differently than us. Then we are righteous and they are unrighteous. When a viewpoint about anything, a subject, becomes about putting another person down or being dismissive, then you and I might be right about a certain subject, but we're not self-righteous. And you need to know, Jesus was righteous, but he was never self-righteous. He carried his righteousness in such a way that he did not turn people away. And this is why people that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And don't miss this. Men and women were drawn to Jesus. So let me ask you this. In your life, do you tend to lead towards self-righteous or unrighteous? Now don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything. Just think in your heart. When you're busy and you're running through life and maybe you're not reading your Bible or coming to worship or praying enough, maybe you're thinking in your, self, in your head, mm, what's wrong with those people? Why do they act that way? Why do they believe that way? Do you tend towards self-righteous or do you tend towards unrighteous? Do you think, I know God loves everyone. I mean, they tell me that in church, but I'm not really sure he likes me. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't pray enough. I don't serve enough. I'm just not sure I'm good enough yet. Well, if you're like me, then in the past, I could struggle with both. And the way my brain works, I could struggle with both in the same day over and over and over again. So that is really a difficult struggle. But you probably know that in Jesus' day, sinners and tax collectors were thought of as unrighteous. But did you know that Pharisees were thought of as self-righteous by Jesus. And he addressed them in Luke 15 when he told three parables. He told the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And the way Jesus tells these parables is very significant. First, he tells a parable about a man. And then he follows it up by a parable about a woman. Now, this parallelism is found throughout the Bible and it's very unique. To make a woman or a Samaritan a hero in the story, being told by a rabbi is unheard of. In this culture, in this century, women and Samaritans are invisible. But for Jesus, gender and ethnicity are irrelevant in his offer of salvation. Let's read together, starting in Luke 15:8. This is the parable of the lost coin. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Now, this doesn't make much sense to us. If we lose a coin, we're going to simply move on. So since this doesn't make sense, think of credit cards or children. Yeah. If you lost your credit card, would you say, oh, no problem. I have a visa. I have American Express, so I lost that. I still have a visa. No, you're going to go look for your visa. Or how about your children? If I lost Nathan, would I say, no worries, I still have Joe? Or if I lost Joe, no problem, I still have Nathan. No, absolutely not. I am going to go looking for them. Do we understand the heart of Jesus when he says about the lost children of Jerusalem? How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? The heart of Jesus is the heart of a mother. Losing, seeking, finding, and celebrating. Everyone, all people are either lost or found. Jesus sees us as someone valuable that is either lost or found to him. And that is the way he wants us to see people. We label people as unjustly and unrighteously. But in the kingdom of God, people are only lost or found. As followers of Jesus, we are called to lead the way in letting go of unjust and unrighteous labels. At our dinner table, in our meetings, at work and at school, in our church, in our driving, in rush hour traffic, we are called to let go of these unloving labels. Now this is important. Jesus did not let go of his rightness, but he was not self-righteous. And this is why he told his followers repeatedly to pursue righteousness and justice. In Psalms 89 and 14, it says Jesus' righteousness and justice are the foundation of his kingdom and his rule. Now, unfortunately, when these words are translated into English, they lose their meaning. Biblical scholars and linguists teach us that we read these and other words from a Western perspective. The Hebrew translation gives us a better understanding. Mishpat, merciful righteousness. Righteousness is not just being in a right relationship with God. It is Jesus sharing his life with us and us sharing our life in Jesus with others. In the first century world, to the poor, acts of righteousness were something that we were encouraged to do. Mercy and making things right through generosity is today still an integral part of the Hebrew culture. Jesus made things right through his generous sacrifice of his life for ours. Mishpat, generous justice. Justice is not just righting a wrong or punishing the guilty. It is so much more than that. It is the honorable reaching down and lifting up the shamed. It is the righteous going down and lifting up the unrighteous. God advocates for the poor, the widows, and the sojourners, sometimes called aliens and what we call refugees. He advocates for anyone who is oppressed. Mishpat justice has everything to do with lifting somebody up out of their shame and restoring their honor. Pastor and author Tim Keller says it this way, if a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice. She will do justice. It is the righteous bending down, sharing what they have been given by God. It's a natural response to the gift of grace. When our boys were young, we had them memorize Luke 12, 48. To whom much is given, much is required. From a very young age, we taught them that serving others and being generous was a part of following Jesus. And they grew up hearing this. 
that they were blessed to be a blessing. We gave them opportunities to serve. And I can see that many of you are doing this and modeling that for your children too. God's merciful righteousness and his generous justice are intrinsically linked to his kingdom and to his character. And throughout the Old and New Testament scriptures, we see story after story of God generously lifting up and restoring, forgiving and healing, and asking us to do the same. Every time Jesus met a woman, he brought her justice and righteousness. Jesus generously lifted women up out of their shame and restored their honor. Jesus' ministry to these women shows all of us, men and women, that our self-righteousness does not save us and our unrighteousness does not condemn us. Now here in this place today, we just know intrinsically that everyone has value, that everyone has value. But you know, everyone everywhere does not know that to be true in the world. And certainly during Jesus' time, that is not how they lived. One of the difficulties of studying the, pre- the history is looking at it as if that these people were treated just like us. But according to the Hippocratic Corpus, this, the, the, um, the Greek medical system used during this time period, slaves, women, and children were treated as property. Yet Jesus didn't treat them that way. Today, many do not know that Jesus taught about the value of women and children and people of all cultures and ethnicities. Also, they don't know that historians and academics right now and that are not even believers acknowledge that Jesus' teaching was the single most important factor in changing how women are treated throughout the world. Today, in the academic world and in the media, Christianity is often criticized as being sexist. But what you need to know is Jesus is never sexist, and God is never sexist. God put his spirit in you and formed you and called you very good. And women, he called you Ezer, life giver. The Gospels tell us clearly that women were always present with Jesus. And the most striking thing about the role of women in the life and teaching of Jesus is the simple fact that they were there. He treated each woman as a person, not property. He treated them as family, lost or found to him. The woman at the well clearly illustrates this in John chapter 4. We find this story in verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So three times a year, the Jewish people had to travel from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. And oftentimes, the Jewish people would travel around Samaria, but Jesus chooses to travel through. In Jesus' time, Jews and Samaritans had been very angry with each other for over 700 years. This goes all the way back to Rehoboam, David's son. He was a terrible leader, causing the northern and the southern kingdoms to split in 931 B.C. Then in 722, the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom and take the Israelites in the north into exile. Now, at this time, the Israelites intermarry with the Assyrians, which is completely forbidden because the Assyrians would sacrifice their children to idols. And the people that intermarried were called Samaritans. Now, this is when the animosity began. The Samaritans built their own temple at the Mount of Mount Gerizim, and the Jacob's Well was found at the base of this mountain. You can go today and still see Jacob's Well. These people that were once family now are so fractured, they are worshiping in separate locations. 
At one point, a group of Samaritans tossed bones on the altar in Jerusalem, making it so that the Israelites could not celebrate Passover. Now, can you even imagine someone making it so you couldn't celebrate Christmas? This is how angry these people were at each other. Verse 5. So Jesus traveled to Sichar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now something is drastically wrong here. This woman is coming to the well at the hottest part of the day, and this is a communal culture. She has no community, no identity, and no one to draw water with. She's intentionally avoiding people. When Jesus asks her, will you give me a drink? Jesus speaks to a woman. He asks her for a drink of water, but no holy Jewish rabbi would ever be caught alone with a woman, and no holy Jewish rabbi would ask a Samaritan for a drink. The Mishnah, the tradition and teaching, of the, Bi- of the rabbis, not the Bible, stated that men should not talk much with womankind and that they shouldn't drink after a Samaritan. The spit of this Samaritan woman would be unclean like that of a pig. And this is who Jesus is. He shows us clearly who he is when he meets this woman and he sits with her, he talks with her, and he drinks after her. Verse 8. His disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herd? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks the water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw water again. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now this woman was married five times, but the, de- the text does not say she was divorced five times. And even if she was, In this culture, at this time, a woman could not choose divorce. Only a man could. It does not say she had children. Maybe she was barren. Maybe that's why her husbands chose to leave her. We don't know much about this story. But aren't we tempted to think that she was just immoral or unrighteous? And even if she was, Jesus was not afraid of her sin, and he wasn't afraid of her. During this time, this woman would be vulnerable and unprotected. And at this point, Jesus revealed her great need and her great shame. He's naming her deepest pain. This is a shame-honor moment, a mishpat zedekah moment. She must have wondered, what's wrong with me? Why does everybody have what I want? Is God punishing me? 
in this moment, she realizes Jesus sees her. He sees her pain and he sees her shame. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we are to worship is in Jerusalem. He's getting a little too close here. And so she says, why don't we talk about you instead of me? Yeah, and she says, like, let me know a little bit more about this prophet who is talking to me. Verse 21. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, a rabbi, is having a theological conversation with a woman. This is completely unheard of. And this is the most profound conversation in the entire Bible. This is just not something you find happening. Jesus talking to, to a woman about worship, about theology. In this moment, Je Jesus is restoring her dignity and elevating her despite her past. Jesus is only concerned with this woman being found by her heavenly father and restored to him. Verse 25. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now in John's gospel, John organizes his entire account about the life of Jesus around seven I am statements. And all of these statements hinge on this one I am statement. When Jesus reveals who he is to a Samaritan woman, when he tells her that he is the one she has been waiting for. Now this is the first time he reveals who he is to anyone. And Jesus chooses to reveal himself to a Samaritan woman. If you were him, who would you have revealed yourself to? Who would have been powerful enough, rich enough, influential enough? Let's keep reading. Verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of town and, and made their way toward him. Skip to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Now, we only stay with someone two days if they are a friend. So these Samaritans are offering hospitality to a Jewish man. Let's re keep reading. Verse 41. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Now this story begins with her alone at a well and, and ends with her restored to her savior and to her community. This woman was healed and restored by Jesus and could not help but to invite others to follow him and to know him. She became a spiritual mother to many 
a huge city that had shamed her. She loved. The woman at the well was a second-class citizen three times over. Gender, nationality, and morality all made her feel worthless in a culture that said she was worth less. Jesus treats her as a lost person in need of being found. He leads her by asking and answering questions. He listens because love listens, revealing he is the Messiah she has been waiting for. He did not placate her sin or her situation. He did not flatter or manipulate her. Jesus honored who she was and who she might become. He encouraged a new way of thinking, an alternative to the way the culture was thinking about her and the way she was thinking about herself. Do you need to hear that you have a place in God's story? Jesus calls us to take injustice seriously. We need to offer better solutions, and the solution Jesus offered was himself. We tend to see justice, injustice as a problem to avoid, but Jesus saw injustice as a person to love. Jesus honors the story we, you have and is inviting you in to something more. We get to embrace his vision for his kingdom to see people as lost or found. Now, who in your life do you have a hard time as seeing as lost and not just unrighteous? I know for me, seeing somebody as lost instead of unrighteous helps me to pray for them. How does this help you to get the breakthrough that you need in viewing yourself as infinitely valuable to God? Jesus wants you to be set free from any lie that you're worthless, any lie that what you did in the past defines you now. You are needed by your family, by your friends, by your community, and Jesus wants you. You're part of the story Jesus is telling about his love, his faithfulness, his generosity, and his justice. The Greek word for lost is apolumi. And did you know that it's found in the most famous Bible verse there is? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not be, say it with me, apolumi, lost. Lost to him relationally. This is the way Jesus sees us. And this is the same word that we found in the lost sheep, the prodigal son, and the lost coin. What if we saw our family and neighbors and coworkers as lost or found, not good or bad? You know what would happen? We'd no longer size them up and write them off. What do you do with lost things? Do you get disgusted with them? No, you go and find them. Losing, seeking, finding, celebrating, this is the totality of Jesus' ministry and kingdom here. He asks us to join him in his work of giving justice and righteousness, in generously lifting people up out of their shame and restoring them to a place of honor as sons and daughters. Moms, Jesus wants nothing more than you, for you to be found daily at his feet, learning from him. This is a place of honor. This is a disciple's pasture. In Jesus' day, you had to apply to be a disciple. And women were not allowed to be a disciple. It's similar to applying to go to college. And yet Jesus lets Mary sit at his feet as a disciple. When Martha tells Mary to get back in the kitchen, yep, a woman tells another woman to get back to work in the kitchen. But Jesus encourages Martha, our worship is best when it comes from a place of rest, 
when it comes from a place of rest in his deep love for us. He loves you. Let him love you, moms. It's not just for your family. It's also for you. Now, I've asked the worship team to close with a specific song called In Jesus' Name. Because when we pray in Jesus' name, we're actually asking, let this be so in accordance to your will and your character. Let your will be done. The song is about praying and interceding for those that we love. And moms, there is nothing more important. Grandmas, nothing more important than we can do than to pray for those we love. Women, you are mentoring and leading someone. Even if you're not a mom, you're a spiritual mom to many. So I want to end today by singing in Jesus' name over one another. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that it is your very good idea that you made moms and mentors. Thank you that our moms and mentors are so generous with their time and willing to love and lead the next generation. Thank you that you say in your word that you gently lead us as moms. We definitely need your grace and your wisdom today. For the grieving moms, for the warrior moms, the praying for prodigal moms, the adopted moms, the waiting moms, the single moms, and for all moms, we are praying for the breakthrough they need. And we're praying for the breakthrough our children need. We will praise you before the victory and keep our eyes on you, believing you can do more than we could ever ask or imagine. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.